Hey everybody, we're back for the conclusion of our exciting roleplay story at the Library of Alexandria, where Andre's character, Piero of Pergamum, will face one final engineering challenge in his bid to get his hands on the secret plans for the floating statue. Go back and listen to the previous episodes in this roleplay for the backstory on that. After that, though, we are going to hear the history of how Hellenistic learning died. We're going to see it take a nosedive after the Roman conquest, go through a bottleneck in the Middle Ages, and come out looking very different in the Renaissance and after. That's what we're talking about today. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. You may have noticed I'm avoiding saying the name of our show. That's because Patreon supporter Avery put a geish on us that we have to take a shot every time we say it. And since I'm recording this part later and I have to go to work in an hour, well, I gotta be real damn careful. <laughs> also, if you don't know what a geish is, go back and listen to our Medieval Irish Geish series. It's a real doozy. Alright, let's jump right back into our roleplay. Andre's character, Piero of Pergamum, has solved two of the three challenges before him. He found a way to engineer an ox-powered water lifter, coming up with some unorthodox alternative designs in the process, such as the ox cog, patent pending. And he also figured out the circumference of the earth, reproducing the results of head librarian Eratosthenes, or Beta, the guy he's trying to get in good with because he's hoarding the secret plans to the floating statue which Pyrrho is supposed to steal and take back to Pergamum. But he can't get to Eratosthenes unless he solves this one last challenge. The water clock. It is all riding on this. It's going to take all his intelligence and cunning to do it. Now, he's riding pretty high from his past achievements with the other two challenges. However, on his way back to his room, his thoughts are interrupted by something quite disturbing. So, you're walking through the halls back to your room, and you're just like, I'm the biggest, best shit in Alexandria. You'd made it back to your room. Okay. okay? Yeah. <laughs> and then you hear a commotion. Okay coming from just outside your doorway. Okay. Okay. You hear what sounds like a retching, mm -hmm. and then a tortured gurgle, and then a thud just outside oh, your door. Oh, my. Okay. What do you do? So I'm in my room, and I hear it out yes. in the hallway. Yeah. Um, I would like to uh, creep as quietly as I can so that I'm not making footstep noises, and bend down and look under the crack at the bottom of my door to see what I can see in the hallway. You see what looks like an old man collapsed on the floor. Blood? Not blood, but there's something coming out of his mouth. Oof. Do I hear anyone walking or running away? No. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, I'm going to open the door and, and run out to see if I can help him. Okay. You go outside your door and you find this old man with curly gray hair and skin a dark, dusky hue. He's collapsed. His skin turned like this almost bluish gray color. Hmm. And there's a spatter of vomit, which is clear liquid, though. Clear liquid. Okay. It's on the floor like it just came out of his mouth. And his dusty chitin, his robe, is soiled. But the excrement is not the color that you would expect. It's like a milky white color. Oh. Yes. What do you do? Is he breathing? So you check. Sure. He does seem to be breathing. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he just pukes. So I'm going to try to tilt him on his side so that if he has vomit in his mouth, he's not going to choke on it. 
Very good. He comes to, and he says, uh, uh, Sir, I'll be all right for now. Thank you. Uh, but what, what is happening to me? What ailment is it that strikes me? Um, do I recognize this guy? You do not recognize him. Okay. You maybe have seen him walking around a little bit, but you don't know his name okay. or anything else about him. I'm assuming at some point I have had Eratosthenes pointed out to me. So if it was him, I would know it was him. Or is that... it is? Yeah, you're certain it's not him. Okay, great, great. Well, that's okay. Um, you do, by luck, happen to have a number of scrolls in your room right now. Mm-hmm. And remember I said you were studying all kinds of things, sure, right? Yeah, well, right? One of the things that they were having you study was medicine. That makes sense. So you happen to have some scrolls by the physicians, Herophilus of Chalcodon. Yep, the chopper. And <laughs> <laughs> the chopper upper. And Aristostratus of Chaos. Okay. He's from um, the town of Chaos? It's C-E-O-S, Chaos. Wow. <laughs> yep. Wow. Yep. And I'm stuck with Pergamum. <laughs> per- Pergamum. <laughs> no, she was saying that. Oh, I think of Pergamum root. Sorry. Yeah, Pergamum. 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 Yeah. It's also pronounced Pergamon or Pergamos, depending on what translation you're reading. Oh, Pergamon with the Pergamos! <laughs> yes. In any case, so you have these scrolls in your room, right? So you can just go and check and maybe find what's going wrong with them. Yeah, but I'll tell them, like, let's let's, let's see if we can find something to help you. And, like, uh, you know, I don't want you to leave them laying in the hallway. Sure. Yeah, maybe I can cover them with a blanket or help them move, it, you know, into the room and under the floor or something. I don't know. Sure. That's easy to find. Okay, great. Yeah. So whatever you want to do, you can bring them into your room or whatever. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, you also happen to have a uh, portable water clock in your room oh. because you knew that was going to be the next thing you'd have to work on. Okay. This portable water clock was actually a tool of Herophilus, the physician, okay. that he used to time people's pulses. Oh, nice. And he actually created... Uh, empirical data sets based on people's ages of their average pulses. Wow. Yes. Now we're talking a little science. All right. And not only that, but he invented the world's first division of time on the scale of a second. It wasn't our modern second, but it was something about that small. It Mm. was based on like how fast is a newborn infant's pulse. They divided it that way somehow. But everybody had like gone to like hours, minutes, but nobody had gone to that level of detail, but he yeah. needed it for timing pulses. Wow. So, okay. So you've got one of those Great. in your chamber as well. If yeah. you wanted to take his I'll pulse. I'll be ripping that apart later to figure <laughs> out how it works. Yeah. Now, so the guy, he seems to be doing okay now, but he's feeling terrible. And you obviously see a number of his symptoms, right? The clear liquid vomit, the milky white excretum. Oh, shit. And also his, like, bluish-gray skin. Hmm. So, what's going wrong with him? I don't know. Do you want to look in the scrolls? Yeah, I'm going to look in the scrolls. Okay. Okay, so you scan these works for any sign of the old man's symptoms, but mostly just find illustrations of the most macabre sort. Hmm. Sometimes you can't tell if you're looking at the body of a human or of a fish. Hmm. It shows them flayed, cut open, and turned inside out. And you feel it might be your turn to retch. But as you look closer, you realize that these are the inner workings of the human body, laid bare like you've never seen before. Hmm. This is what Hegator was talking about that first day that you arrived at the Musaean. Right. Dissection. Perfect. Herophilus and Erisistratus were famed for it. 
and in one giant leap they discovered more about human anatomy than all previous generations combined, it could be argued. Hmm. But alas, taboos in both Greek and Egyptian cultures put an end to dissection after their deaths, hmm. leaving only the ravings of the rare few, like Hegator, to speak out about how much we could learn if we just dissected corpses. Right. Indeed, if only these anatomical studies could help you understand this old man's ailment. Perhaps they can. You look closely at the illustrations, and you discern that Herophilus has identified something called nerves. Hmm flowing throughout the body like tree roots, and he divides them between sensory and motor nerves. He notes the center of the soul, or mind, resides not in the heart, as Aristotle believed, but in the brain. Oh, nice. Huh. As you recall, Aristotle thought that the brain was little more than a radiator. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> he thought that the function of the brain was to cool the body by giving off heat. That was Aristotle's idea. That's... Not nuts. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But Herophilus thought, no, this is the center of cognition. Look how the nerves go from all the sensory organs, like the eyes, directly mm. to the brain. Yeah, right. This must be the center of cognition. Right. Smart. But this thing called the nervous system does not appear related to your old man's illness. Hmm. So you move on. So you discover the next chapter, the circulatory system, okay. which appears like a second tree root system. What? Come on, Herophilus. And it's divided this time between veins and arteries. Whoa, he made that distinction? Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. Actually, it seems to be Aristotle's research that's most apparent here. Hmm. It's not historically clear which one of them actually invented it. Right. Probably Aristotle's. Cool. Or discovered it, rather. He appears to contend that the human body functions much like one of the hydraulic machines of Ctesibius that you used to bloop, 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 yeah. get your water from. Right. He even labels valves just like a pump in these arteries and veins. Huh. Surely the fact that hydraulics and this circulatory system were both discovered at the same time and along the same principles by people who probably worked together at Alexandria cannot be a coincidence. Hmm. That's cool. Fun factoid. Yeah. But this does not appear very helpful right now either. <laughs> you find an entire chapter on midwifery and pregnancy, including the discovery of the ovum. Hmm. Um, but again, that's probably not going to be relevant. meaning the egg cell. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yep. I know it's a pretty large cell for a human, but it's still impressive that they... I could also see them, like, once they figured out kind of how those systems worked, hypothesizing that there must be some kind of ovum or egg that, you know, rather than, like, we found it and here it is, look that's, at it. That's probably it's what possible. it was. Yeah, it probably was speculation. Because they're speculating about atoms. Right. They're speculating about the tiny animals in, um, like, male semen. Right, yeah. <laughs> this is basically, like, the equivalent of those. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you find an entire chapter on midwifery and pregnancy, including discovery of the ovaries. Fascinating, but again, hardly relevant right now, right? Finally, you reach a portion of the book to do with ailments and treatments. Finally! Symptoms are matched with prescriptions here. And you discover that Herophilus recommends treatments consisting almost entirely of regimens of diet and exercise, with none of the conventional superstitious incantations or mumbo-jumbo about dreams sent from the goddess Clepius hmm. that you are so used to in these sorts of texts. At last, you find an entry with symptoms matching the old man's bluish-gray skin, clear liquid retching, milky-white excreta. All signs point to cholera. Okay. Eagerly, you skip to the treatment, for which Herophilus simply writes... There is no treatment. 
Even mm. here, he gives no prayer, no spell, no talisman. Right. Where his science falls short, he is simply silent. Wow. Well, respectable. Yeah. Unfortunately, this guy's uh, not long for this world. I mean, yeah. You can recover from Yeah, there's a chance, but, but there's not much we can do for him. There's not much like. that you can do for him. Hmm. So... All of that was just a fun little interruption <laughs> to show, like, <laughs> science was even going into medicine. It was amazing right. what they were doing back then. Okay. Um, so now, all right, you ready for your water clock? Okay. Yeah, water clock time. So we're done with this. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so your final puzzle. Yes. Piero of Pergamum. <laughs> is to construct the world's most accurate water clock. Okay. Now... In order to describe this, first we have to talk a little bit about ancient water clocks and what they were like. Okay, great. Okay, so I'll go into that and then I'll describe the part that you have to improve upon. Great. Okay? So water clocks have long since been in use in the ancient world. In the Greek world, they are used as timers in trials to time your speech. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And as we said, Herophilus the physician actually used one, like a portable one. Right. To time pulses. I love that it was portable. Yeah, he made he made it. He made house calls. Also, so, yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Now, in Greece, there was also a famous prostitute who used a water clock to time her trysts, <laughs> <laughs> and and she was nicknamed Clepsydra because that was the name of this ancient form of water clock. It was the Clepsydra. Okay. So she was water clock. That was her nickname. <laughs> How could it go see water so clock? So you're going to pay by like the half hour or something. Exactly. And we're going to keep it prompt. Exactly. Yeah. Now, the Clepsydra had been used since ancient times in Egypt, going all the way back to the days of the pharaohs with actual archaeological evidence found at Karnak, dating all the way back to 1400 BCE. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it goes way back there. Now, here's what a Clepsydra is. That's the Clepsydra as it was used in Greece. Wow, that's a lot less impressive than yeah, I've just, always pictured. Just looks like two cups, basically. <laughs> it two does. teacups in Disneyland. One cup peeing into another cup. <laughs> yep, basically. Yeah, right. Yep. It's basically just a vat mm -hmm. with a hole in the bottom. And as the water drains out through the hole, the level of the water lowers. Yeah. And it's usually caught by something else, another sure. vat beneath. Right. But the main thing is that main vat, the water level lowers. Inside there are marks, much like you would see on a measuring cup. And each of those marks, which form meter, indicates different hours of the day. Right. Okay. Now, the highest mark, visible only when the vat is full, represents sunrise. That's when you start your clock going, if it's mm. a day clock. The next mark that becomes visible indicates one hour has passed, then the next mark another hour, and so on until the vat is empty, which indicates sunset. Because so believe it, it or not, for a different vat every couple of weeks because the different lengths yes. of the day. Really? Yeah, almost. Wow. Well, see, here's the thing: because the way they defined an hour mm -hmm. in the ancient world was not sixty minutes like yeah. it is now. They defined it as one twelfth of the time between sure. sunrise and sunset. Yeah. So that would change between summer solstice and winter solstice all throughout the year. Yeah. So I believe with the Egyptian clepsydras, what they did was they'd have twelve columns around the circumference of the the vat mm -hmm. each one with a different meter for a different month 
oh, appropriate okay. to a different month. Yeah, and right. I'm sure you could even subdivide that into days if you really wanted to get minute about it. Right. But the Klebsydra had a number of problems. <laughs> We're not going to talk about all of them. We're just going to focus on the one problem that you're going to have to solve. Okay. okay? So your problem is the problem of diminishing flow due to differing water pressure. This yeah. obsessed the Greeks. They are trying hard to figure this out, how we can overcome this. It was a big deal. So what the problem is, is when the vat is full, you've got a lot of water in there. That means that's a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. So it's got a lot of pressure shooting that water out of the hole in the bottom. So yeah. the pressure is com it's coming out at a very fast rate. Mm -hmm. When it gets down to the bottom, you've got very little weight exerting pressure on that. So it's going to trickle out at a, very, at a much slower rate, yeah. which means that your hour at the beginning of the day is going to go by a lot faster. Unless the marks are set at different right. intervals. Yeah, right. Yeah. So your job is to devise a water clock that overcomes this problem of diminishing flow using whatever changes or additions or subtractions that you deem necessary. All right, folks, final problem. If you want to solve it yourself, hit pause now. As for Andre, poor Andre. I was so mean to him with these problems. This one was his personal nightmare. Now, I would probably have been stumped by any one of these problems, but Andre's the kind of guy that when presented with a challenge, he just does not give up. And I tell you, I get so much entertainment from just watching the gears turn in his head. No pen intended. So here are just some flashes of thoughts as he comes up with this contraption. It would be easy if you could just do multiple spigots down the side. Imagine that the inside of the vessel is not curved, mm -hmm. but it, it's stepped. If you used a floater switch in the source vat so that when the water level went down, the floater switch is getting lower uh -huh. and that lever opens up a second spigot. But you'd almost have to do that like 12 levels of spigot opening. <laughs> it would be a little complex. Ooh, yeah. You could do it. The source vat empties into the first cup. And when it overflows, it spills into a second cup, almost like a series of stepped waterfalls where the first cup automatically. So once the cup is full, that's enough weight to push it down and it just like a, a gong or like a little bell goes off or something. Okay. So then it just like every hour, it's like... So what Andre is attempting to describe here is actually pretty clever, if complex. It's a water clock shaped like a Mayan step pyramid turned upside down with a floater switch in it, kind of like in a toilet, that turns on a series of spigots as the water level descends so that the total amount of water flowing out increases with time to compensate for the loss in water pressure. Meanwhile, this may or may not be combined with an earlier idea for overflow cups that ring a gong when filled. Now that's honestly way better than what I probably would have come up with. And listeners, how about you? So I was basically just ready to consider this problem solved, but Andre was not satisfied. He just didn't want to give up. He wanted to find a more elegant solution like the Hellenistic thinkers found. So let's check in on him. I don't think this is going to work. It's a little Rube Goldbergy, but it you can do it. Gold yeah. yeah. Do you want a hint? I want a hint, but I want to do it right. So I think okay. Piro is going to leave the royal quarter mm -hmm. and go down to the docks okay. and find a hard-drinking, fist-fighting, 24-hour-a-day... Wait, 12-hour 12, 12 and four-guard-shifts-a-day bar 
where the wine has to flow nonstop. Okay. And he's going to sit down and just get drunk thinking about this problem, but also watching all the wine being poured out and how quickly the servers have to deal with, and just like be thinking about creative solutions to water flow the whole time. Excellent. Yeah. And you have advantage with theoretical systems. Okay. So we're going to consider like this overlay of geometry goes over these wine barrels. <laughs> <laughs> right? And everybody getting their yeah. uh, wine from them. Right. And it's just like this, a beautiful mind kind of moment. So you're going to have advantage okay. in this rock, paper, raven to okay. see if you get the clue. Okay. Okay? Yep. Rock, paper, raven, shoot. Tie. Oh, tie, so advantage. Okay, yep. great. Okay, so you get the clue. So what I'm going to do is mm -hmm. I am going to show you the pieces, see if that helps. Great. Okay. And listeners, again, you can see this on our website, see the same things I'm showing him. So finally, I showed Andre the visual diagram of the Hellenistic solution, and from there he was able to figure out what was going on and fill in the details himself. So basically, the solution come up with by Ctesibius in the 3rd century BCE to solve the problem of diminishing flow was you have running water from a pipe constantly flowing into the vat with an outlet near the top of the vat so that it doesn't overflow but rather the vat always remains filled up to the level of that outlet. Thus, the water pressure remains constant at all times because the vat is always equally full. Now, Kittisibius had a little bit of Andre in him, that uh, Rupe Goldberg streak, because he also added a whole system where chambers fill up with water and turn a wheel, which turn gears, which causes a cylinder to turn on, which is inscribed different meters for different days of the year, so that the hours are always appropriate to the time of year, and the indicator that points to that meter is on a float that rises with the water level. It's pretty complex as well. And so, and you can see the whole thing in our episode post at www.deadideas.net. Now, as for Andre, well, like I said, he had already basically solved the problem, so I gave it to him. Pyrrho of Pergamum had solved the final challenge. All right, well, let's move on. That was quite a task, but you solved it. Okay. All right. So you report your solution to Hestiaia. You have to walk her through your diagrams. And she's like... <laughs> Yeah. Okay. No. Okay. Yeah. No. Mm, yeah. Okay. That. Yeah. That makes sense. I think that would work, and that's pretty close, actually, to what Ctesibius did. I think we can count that as a success. <laughs> <laughs> and then I unveil the true masterpiece, which yeah. is the twelve cup solution. And she's like, look like, at this. Install this in the public forum, and children will play in time. And you she's know, like, like nah. no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, being Pergamese and all that, I wasn't quite sure about you at first, but you have proved your genius after all. I've been reporting your progress to Beta all this time, and, well, he is pleased. He will see you now. Appreciate that, Hestiaia. And uh, can I just say that, I mean, I know not everybody's heard of uh, Pergamum, but it's, uh, it's a happening place. I mean, they call Pergamum Parchment Valley. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of a hub of innovation. I think you'll be hearing a lot more about it. It's on the up. Yeah. So you were led to a private building of the Muzion, the quarters of Eratosthenes himself, the head librarian. Oh. Guy that you've been waiting all this time to see. Yep. Wait here, Hestiaia says, and then she leaves. You're left in a small room that appears to be a simple breakfast nook, judging by the few crusts of bread and olives left uneaten. 
Meanwhile, there's hardly room to stand or sit for all of the scrolls and papyri just scattered everywhere, and you feel almost claustrophobic amidst all the scribbling with notes and stuff. The walls bear the marks of compass and ruler everywhere. The records of perhaps years or even decades of this man's pondering. Sure. So I'm going to start going through the papers, and I'll stop if I hear footsteps coming. I want to see if I can find anything. Okay, very good. Especially any hovering statues. <laughs> very nice. So you rummage around, you rummage around, and you're just not turning up anything about floating statues. And then you hear some shuffling from within the residence. Okay. I'll leave the papers alone. Okay. Then you hear, I am sorry about the mess, comes a haggard voice. And there appears an old man with a bushy white beard, high cheekbones, and close-set eyes. Hmm. He must be in his mid-seventies, you would guess. He wears a simple robe, not too flashy, and comes and sits down by you. Now this is the man that you've been waiting to see all this time. So let's just summarize all the things that we've learned about him and more, okay? So we've already heard that they call him Beta or B, right? Mm Because he's the second greatest at everything. He's like a renaissance man at every different thing, right? right? So in terms of scientific triumphs, he became the father of geography when he added the parallels and the meridians to the map, mm-hmm. right? Most accurate map to date of the known world. Using this data, as well as the common notion of the Earth being round, he argued that India could be reached by sailing west from Spain. Hmm. And Christopher Columbus got this idea from him. Right. Crossing boundaries into literary studies then, he also wrote poems such as Erigone, and he combined geography and literary studies to critique Homer calling into question the geographic data in the Odyssey, saying, like, these places that Odysseus is going to, this doesn't make any sense. Mm. This can't be real. Right. Right. Are his poems any good, or are they just famous because it's this guy? I don't know. (laughs) That's a good question. In the realm of astronomy, he measured the circumference of the Earth, as Mm. we've seen. You've also done it as well now. He also measured the circumference of the sun, as well as the distance to the sun and moon, wow. both of which were wildly off. You, okay. can't, you can't, <laughs> can't win them all. He also invented what came to be known as the Julian calendar with 365 days and a leap day every four years. Wow, okay. And then it was only called the Julian calendar because Julius Caesar then adopted that okay. from him. So it was originally called the Aristosthenes beta calendar. That's probably what he called it. He also invented the armillary sphere, which is that shows the cosmos. Oh, right, right, the Ptolemaic right. yeah, system. Okay. You know, like crazy looking orb-like thing with all the interlocking circles that, mm-hmm. yeah. In the realm of mathematics, he invented an instrument called the mesolabe to perform the extraction of cube roots which is what Philo mm. called doubling the cube. Right. Um, we used that for the torsion on the torsion catapults. catapults. Yeah, right. And he invented an algorithm now called Eratosthenes' sieve for finding prime numbers. That's right. Oh, He was nice. mining Bitcoin in the Hellenistic <laughs> period. <laughs> nice. Finally, in the realm of social reform, he criticized Aristotle's idea that Greeks should remain racially pure believing that there was good and bad in every man, regardless. Hmm. Wait, that was whose idea? That we that should be? So he was criticizing Aristotle. Aristotle felt the Greeks should be racially pure. Yes. Right? And this Aristotle guy's like, nah. No. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's Beta, the second greatest at everything. Wow. So he comes down, he says, I'm sorry about the mess. And then he says, so, the genius of Pergamum, Hestiaia has spoken highly of you. 
What is it that you seek here in Alexandria, young Piero? It's a great honor to meet you, sir. I've been uh, marveling at your works for much of my very short and young career. Thank you, but flattery will get you nowhere. Your <laughs> genius says everything. Let's speak as equals now. Oh, wow. Well, you know, Eratosthenes, everything I've done so far, it feels like I'm going back over ground that's already been covered. And uh, I think that's good and necessary to just prove my capability. But what really calls to me is to solve something that no one has ever quite solved before. Ah, yes, your mind is <laughs> on fire. <laughs> what is it that it's you... It's why they call me Pyro. Pyro, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, what is it that burns you up? Well, it could just be legend, but... I've heard tell that... Wait, actually, so who is the person that supposedly invented the flying statue? Or designed it? The architect's name was Timacharis. Okay. So I, it could just be legend, but I've heard that Timacharis had designs for a statue which would appear to be floating or perhaps actually float without being suspended by any kind of rope or beam. And it was never constructed which makes me wonder whether it's really possible and if I could find a way to do it. And if I could find any information on that, I would love to make that my first big project. Your ambitions are high, my young friend. <laughs> but I think I can help you. Hmm. It goes back into a back room. Like, you can hear the sound of, like, keys and gears <laughs> turning and stuff comes out of the hover locks chair. were not great back yeah then, but... <laughs> right it's the only thing we haven't improved in this <laughs> game um yeah but he comes back out with a scroll and he unrolls it and by the looks of what you're seeing in the diagrams and the text it looks like the plan was to have an iron statue of mm -hmm. arsinoe oh wow and then she's in a dome into which has been set all around lodestones. I knew it, okay. <laughs> yeah. So that the idea was that these lodestones are magnetic and they would pull on the iron equally from all directions. Oof. So that if you put her in the exact center, right. she would just stay there. Right. Floating. It's not going to work. Well, <laughs> Eratosthenes says... <laughs> I give you this scroll as a gift because, <laughs> honestly, it never would have worked. <laughs> Which is true. Right. We now know that. Yeah. Um, you can do it with at a smaller scale. At a, at a much smaller scale, you can you can make you know uh, magnets float for at least a decent period of time. Right. You could buy things on Amazon that do that basically. But in like the 18th century, some 19th century somewhere, there's a mathematician that proved that. Yeah, what they were trying to do, you, it would never be stable. Yeah. Basically, it, at the scale they were doing, it would always end up either floating down or to the left, to the right, up, and it just, like, it would go into one magnet. You could never get it to just stay in one spot, and it was mathematically proven that that was the case. Yeah. There are ways that it could be done, oh, though. So, do you, since this is your project, yes. do you want to just... Speculate, perhaps. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm going to get to work on this. do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I don't think it's even a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Genius of Pergamon. Um, no, because the thing that Timacharis... Yep. The thing that Timacharis wasn't privy to, mm -hmm. that any Pergamese 
commoner would know about yeah. is parchment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to be set to work uh-huh. in, a, in a private studio. Yeah. And uh, I think the, problem, the first problem is that they're trying to make this entire gigantic statue out of iron. Uh-huh. And that's really heavy, for one thing. Okay. And it also means that the entire room has to have perfectly aligned magnets that, mm-hmm. and like you said, it's going to just flip to one side or the other and just, yeah, yeah you just aren't going to get it to work. But I, I want to go in a different direction. Okay. I happen to know mm-hmm. that um, if made by a, a master craftsman, you can uh, make sculpture out of parchment. Mm. But very lightweight. Okay. Uh-huh. And then build like almost like a... I was going to say paper mache, I guess a sheepskin mache or some kind of, you know, shaped or sculpted or molded uh, sheepskin Uh parchment-y exterior. Yeah. But the idea would be that only in the base and the feet uh, of the statue would there be iron. Okay. And then there only needs to be uh, a ring of magnets around the base. And she will appear to be emerging from and sort of like hovering, uh, you know, kind of like arising from this, uh, this, this wrought metal ring and uh, hovering majestically above it. And you'd be able to walk all the way around it. If it was a very large scale, you could walk on the ring around it and be like, oh my gosh, there's no ropes, you know. Mm-hmm. So the idea is very little weight, very few magnets involved, and the magnets only have to be around the base to just keep it in place as well as off the ground rather than being the entire freaking dome lined with yeah, magnets that'll right. ever line up yeah that's the idea and then if it seems to work then we can uh, just uh paint her up <laughs> hit print <laughs> all right so i i don't i don't want to speculate whether that would work or not I think maybe it's pretty sketchy it's probably pretty sketchy <laughs> But just for funsies, let's say that it kind of sort of works. Right. You know, enough to establish your reputation right. forevermore <laughs> as the floating statue guy. I think a more realistic solution would be to work on some kind of hot air trapped inside of her and lift well, it that way. Let me tell you one some ways that possibly maybe it could have worked. Okay. I don't know if it would really work at the scale we're looking for, but... One of the assumptions that the mathematician was working on is that the everything is stationary. But there's a toy that came out in like the 80s called the Levitron hmm. that basically does exactly what we're trying to do. Hmm. It's small, right. but it's like a top that spins. Hmm. And so if you had it spinning, if you had the statue spinning <laughs> at very high rate. <laughs> Maybe like a dancing goddess that would work. Maybe. Or if you're trying to just represent the sun and so, oh, that'd be cool. you know, something yeah. like that. Right. Um, so that's possible. And the sun thing is interesting because ever since Pliny reported about Timocharis' attempt, there began this whole tradition of people claiming that there were all these floating <laughs> magnetic statues around everywhere in the ancient world. One of them being there were Christian writers who claimed that when the Library of Alexandria was finally destroyed, mm-hmm. there was a floating a uh, statue of Helios, the sun god, in the Serapium. Yeah. And then there's a whole bunch of other ones. There was one that, like, they, they said that, like, um, it was, like, 
Mars and Venus, and because one was magnet and the other one was iron, then in this ritual they would come together and they'd embrace like lovers because they would just go whomp together, oh, all God. kinds of stuff the like most that. Violent embrace ever. And none of these things probably ever no. actually existed, right? But it became this tradition, this like mythic Mega thing punk. that built up. But yeah. I think it quite possible that Timacharis really attempted. I would believe that to yeah. do it, right? And then found out like, oh, yeah. can't really do this. It's really hard to balance anything with magnets. Yeah. like ludicrous yeah yeah um all right so can you some wrap up yep i think piro is going to eventually get either a magnet parchment statue or some kind of hot air gas lifted statue uh-huh. uh going yep but more importantly be sending regular reports back to uh Yemenis, mm-hmm. the second i'm gonna tell him about like the social structure around the library and how like because there's all these privileges, it attracts great minds. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that drives them away is the lack of stability. Mm-hmm. And that the most recent incident was a civil war. Mm-hmm. And the locals actually don't even like the library because of all these privileges. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to recommend that he basically copy the system of giving privileges to the library and the scholars. But with the modification of asking the scholars to offer classes like I did, which will make the people like it. Ah, that's me my suggestion very nice and then of course i'll like if need be go in in person and present a flying statue that is like whipping around in a circle or like <laughs> lifted by an obvious like air fan or whatever it might be like ooh. excellent yeah. excellent thus making pergamum uh-huh. the ascendant new capital of wisdom in the ancient world for about 22 years until one of these like many cultures just rolls over it with an army yeah, yeah which is it. what's basically gonna yeah, happen exactly. <laughs> So, to wrap up that, so I got all that, like, how does all of this learning die, basically? Right, yeah. So, that's the last part of our episode here. Okay, so... It's going to get sad, folks. (laughs) Eumenes, your prince, is obviously very happy with your efforts. It makes you the first head librarian. He puts you in charge of everything. Wow. Yeah. You are famous for what you've achieved. That's great. Not to mention my, my stunning social movement to um, do away with hair veils. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, to go to straight history now, mm-hmm. he really did, Eumenes II really did, found the Library of Pergamum, and it rose to great prominence, even rivaling Alexandria. Mm-hmm. It would host such scholars as Beton of Pergamum, who wrote on siegecraft, and also Apollonius of Perga, who we've seen studied the conic sections geometry, hmm. which is so important that a great deal of the 18th century math uh, was devoted to reinventing his work, as it was crucial to the trajectory of cannon fire and also to the elliptical orbits of planets. Wow. For like Newton's gravitational stuff. Wow, that had some payoffs, yeah. Yes, it did. <laughs> In fact, your library posed such a threat to Alexandria's that there erupted something called the Paper Wars. And this was not a real war, it was a Cold War, but it was a bid by Alexandria to stunt the growth of Pergamum's library by ceasing to export papyrus so that you couldn't <laughs> write on it. Fortunately for Pergamum, you had all that parchment. That's great. And that's oh, when yeah. it became big. Nice. Yep. Wow. Yep. So the Library of Pergamum flourished, and the city did indeed become a center of culture and learning. Oh, I had no idea. Yep, historically that's true. However, this is not entirely a happy ending. Mm. The political conflicts among the great powers of the day only got worse, and this is the story 
basically of how Rome came to dominate the Eastern Mediterranean and also how it played a major role in the decline of Hellenistic learning. Hmm. The year after your voyage to Alexandria, the Macedonians and the Seleucids conspired to divide Egypt between them because they saw that it was mm, weak after right. the Civil War. And they like signed a non-aggression pact like Hitler and Stalin in World War II <laughs> dividing up Poland, right? Right, That's right. exactly what they did. Wow. Learning of this, Pergamum and Rhodes sent ambassadors to Rome with evidence that, hey, they're doing this. Mm. And for the sake of stability in the Mediterranean, Rome was like, well, I guess we'll send an army. Balance of power. <laughs> so they demanded that the Macedonians stand down. But when the Macedonians refused, the Romans took it as an insult to their own honor and were like, <laughs> we're attacking you now. <laughs> that sounds to reason. <laughs> yeah. And they defeated the Macedonians. But then Rome washed its hands of Greece temporarily, but then was pulled back in. Yada, 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 with Egypt and Macedonia now weak, the Seleucids thought, hey, maybe we can make a bit of conquering everything. <laughs> and that's just kind of how it went. So you had one war after another until Rome was just like, we're just going to solve everything. None of you can play fairly, so we're just going to come in and rule it all. <laughs> and they just like conquered everything, created a wasteland, and called it peace. Wow. Now, in the process of that, guess what happened to Hellenistic learning? So... Roman already destroyed Syracuse and Sicily in 212 BCE, killing mm. the great Archimedes, possibly by accident, possibly mm. not. It went on to wreak a path of destruction in its wake as it went. Any libraries that they came across were typically ransacked, and their books were carried off as war booty. Mm. Not that the Romans understood the true value of what these books contained. They were more like just trophies right. for them. An illustration of the Roman attitude is found in the sack of Corinth, which happened in 146 BCE. The Roman general Mummius carried off a portrait of Aristides of Pergamum in the belief that it had magic powers. <laughs> so that gives you some sense of the comparative level of sophistication at this time yep. between Romans and Greeks. The Romans weren't cavemen exactly, but they were, they were pre-scientific, hmm. you could say that. Right. The following year, in 145 BCE, Roman politics made its hand felt indirectly in Egypt. Ptolemy VIII, by then, there are a lot of Ptolemies. Ptolemy VIII, called Euergetes II, expelled the Greek population of Alexandria, partly wow. in a bid to sway Roman favor. Like, look, we're not going to be dealing with Greeks. We're gonna, we want to deal with Romans now. Right. But guess what the ethnicity was of the majority of the intellectuals in right, Alexandria? Right, Greek. Greek. Yeah. So it decimated the intellectual populace mm. of Alexandria. Yeah. And Alexandria just never really got its groove back after that. Ooh. A similar process went on pretty much everywhere that Rome went. They viewed Greek intellectuals just like so many books and portraits, basically as war booty. Like Roman generals would see these engineers and scientists and think, Wow, they'd make great slaves. <laughs> so they'd destroy their little think tank communities, mm -hmm. cart them off to different parts of the Roman Empire, back to their homes, yep. and be like, look at this prestigious scribe that I have now, <laughs> just basically copying my stupid words I'm saying at yeah, banquets. Teach my kids grammar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, this may have happened in both Pergamum and Rhodes. The last Attalid king of Pergamum died without an heir. He bequeathed his kingdom to Rome suspicious yeah <laughs> <laughs> but a local illegitimate son claimed the throne and so rome was like fine we guess we have to conquer you now they sent in an army and by 129 bce rome's one-time ally pergamum was now its subject the library 
unfortunately, was neglected after that. Hmm. Something very similar happened with Rhodes. Although Rome's ally, it was blamed for being the only people more arrogant than the Romans themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and it came under Roman domination in 43 BCE. After refusing to pay tribute, Rhodes was sacked. 50 of its leading citizens were put to death. All of its gold was carried off. And no doubt, its intellectual resources were likewise plundered. Who knows what naval secrets may have been lost at that time. Yeah. Alexandria's fate was still worse. In 48 BCE, Julius Caesar became involved with Cleopatra and her civil war that she had going on with her brother. And in order to block her brother's fleet from Alexandria's harbor, he set fire to his own ships at port. Mm. Unfortunately, the fire spread to nearby buildings. And we are told that some 40,000 books were lost as a result. It's not clear whether the library itself caught fire or just some overflow building that yeah, would have been right. near the docks. I think probably that. Sounds like that one. But it was a little bit of a whoopsie-daisy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a legend that Mark Antony, once he got with Cleopatra, seized 200,000 scrolls from Ooh. the library of Pergamum. Okay. And then gave them to his new wife, Cleopatra, to make up for the loss. Mm. But sucks for the library of Pergamum. Yeah. So Julius Caesar, Cleopatra, and Mark Antony, you know that story, right? We don't have to go into that. But Egypt finally submitted to Rome in 30 BCE. Hmm. Now the icing on the cake. The cherry on top that really sums up this bumbling of Rome when it comes to Greek science is summed up in a story told about a visit by the Emperor Augustus to the tomb of Alexander the Great. Yeah. In Egypt. Remember I said he was in that crystal coffin there somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is told in this legend that Augustus, gazing on the great man's corpse within his crystal coffin, just just couldn't help himself. He needed to touch it. Oh, no. (laughs) He had it opened up, and he touched it, and he accidentally broke the nose off. (laughs) (laughs) It it had to be reattached. Now, I don't know about you, but that... Definitely sounds like a just-so story for, like, there's something weird with the nose, and this is explaining how it happened. We'll bring in Augustus. Probably didn't really happen. Right. But it's perfectly emblematic for that bowl-in-a-china closet kind of presence that Rome represented in the Greek world of learning. Which is funny because that, like, perfectly echoes Alexander's own attitude. I mean, according to legend, again, which like, the Gordian not, like, well, if if I can't figure out how to untie it, I'll just cut it with my sword, you know? Exactly. Like, yeah, that's kind of fair. I hope you didn't break your nose off. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Now, to be fair, it wasn't entirely Rome's fault that Hellenistic learning went extinct. After Eratosthenes, the great library entered a different kind of phase of study, Mm -hmm. um, focused more on literary criticism and just summarizing all the knowledge that had been learned, more than doing original research. Cut back funding on the space program. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, right. right, Exactly. Okay, I'm sorry. So they switched to literary critique. Yeah, Yeah, rather than doing more creative original research, they started doing literary (laughs) stuff and summarizing knowledge. Yeah. Anyway, between that and Ptolemy VIII's gutting his own intellectual community by expelling the Greeks, like that was. That was really the time when you knew, like, it was only a matter of time mm. before Alexandria was going to go down. Right. And so it was just a decline after that. From this vantage point, we can now return to our question from many episodes ago of why didn't Rome undergo an industrial revolution? Hmm. We saw many factors that might have contributed to that, 
but by now it should be fairly clear that the fragility of the ancient intellectual communities, these think tanks, was really crucial. They were very liable to being decimated or dispersed like this, and that was quite a significant factor. If the ancient world had had the printing press mm. and was able to disseminate their knowledge farther and faster right. into more different kinds of people, yeah, maybe we wouldn't have lost as much as we did. Mm -hmm. Maybe there would have been more of a spur in, a, in an earlier, if not immediate, but earlier industrial revolution than what we really had in history. It's right. possible. Yeah, I suppose that's a dramatically different model than like this huge national and almost international project involving government funding and the military and everything else, all to support the work of maybe 30 to 50 scholars right. in one city, which is vulnerable to war, etc. Exactly. You know, like that's very different than the widespread dissemination of, yeah. yeah, wow. So what happened instead was learning got worse in Roman times. So Latin authors struggled to comprehend the dense jargon and technical style of Greek writers, frequently resulting in complete misunderstanding. For example, Vitruvius, the Roman architect, he's an amazing architect, but he mocked Archimedes for believing that water could never be perfectly flat. He's like, Psst. <laughs> But what he was failing to realize is that what Archimedes meant was that he knew that the planet was round, and so the oceans were round. Mm. And so at the macro scale, water is always curved to yeah, some extent, right. even though it looks flat, yep. you know. And he was like, Archimedes didn't know shit. <laughs> <laughs> the circumference of the Earth was measured several more times, and the answers actually got less accurate as wow. people went on to do that. Methods got confused as well. Rousseau states that not a single Latin author was able to convey Eratosthenes' method coherently. Wow. And eventually things started where you could almost call it, things got pre-medieval. Yeah. You know? For example, the Roman writer Pliny writing in the first century CE, so now we're getting into the time of Hero of Alexandria, describes the hives of bees, you know how their little cells are like in hexagons, mm -hmm. you know, inside a hive. He completely missed the fact that was totally known earlier in the Hellenistic period that that's the optimal geometric shape for tessellation. Mm. And he states instead that bees create the six-sided cells because they have six legs. <laughs> <laughs> And it gets even worse than that. Perhaps the best example of this degradation of knowledge, also from Pliny, can be seen in his report of Aristosthenes' method of measuring the circumference of the earth, which, as we've seen, has gotten worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And now here's how he explains how Aristosthenes did it. Are you ready for this? Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he says, It is said that they found in Dionysodorus's tomb and he was just some geometry dude back okay. then who had been buried. It was found in this guy's tomb. A letter from him to the living, according to which he had traveled from the tomb to the lowermost point of the earth, and the distance was 42,000 stadia. And there were geometers who interpreted the letter to mean that it was sent from the center of the earth, which is down as far as possible from the top, like the center of a ball, from which data a computation was carried out, and they announced that the length of the meridians, the circumference of the Earth, was 252,000 stadia. Which so, was close, right? It's close, yeah. But <laughs> all of a sudden, it's like you have this dead guy's ghost writing a letter right. with this deus ex like, machina yeah, I went message down a tunnel to the, the middle. Yeah, right. It's like magic. Yeah. They, they, like, they have the right answer from some manuscript, but they're yeah. like, oh, the method. Um, yeah. yeah. Right. So that's the kind of world 
that was confronted by our original man, Hero of Alexandria, hmm. who invented the Aeola pile that started our whole series rolling here with the steam engine thing. Could they have built a locomotive? Right. Yeah. He was working from ancient Hellenistic authors, mostly Philomechanicus, the guy that you got the book of. Mm-hmm. But they were highly technical in language and by then poorly understood. It's to his credit that he was able to extract as much information as he did from them. Hmm. But as for his inventions, it's just, it's no wonder that they were all novelties and curiosities. I mean, what else was he to do to impress right. his students when yeah. he had students like this kind of world, you know, that you're <laughs> yeah. coming from? You know, of course you come up with these crazy things like a temple doors that open and close by themselves, right. because how else are you going to impress them? If you yeah. just show the math, they're not going to realize how amazing it is, you know? Right. So and you're not going to get the buy-in to do some bigger project of greater import. You know, exactly. like you're never going to build a, a railroad, not because it's not really possible with the tech, but because not enough Romans are going to care about investing in that. Yeah. You had to impress the leaders, yeah. not just your students too. Right. Yeah. So I have a question. Yep. So, I mean, I think that most people who identify as geeks like myself, when we think of the loss the decline and then also like the eventual like destruction of the library of Alexandria. Or we hear about all these like losses of centers of knowledge at the end of the Hellenistic period. So like to us, it's a great tragedy. Like mm-hmm. it, it hurts my heart a little bit. Yeah. Right. But that's partly because I, I, you know, I don't care about the people who lost their homes in the fire at Alexandria. Like when the, when the ships were burned to block the Harbor. Yeah. It didn't just take out a bunch of tens of thousands of books. It also probably killed people in their own homes and burned down entire blocks of the city. And, yeah. you know, people lost their lives or their, their livelihood. And that, I would imagine, would, would be a much greater tragedy to people at the time than, like, build the loss of some scrolls in some library warehouse. Yeah. So, like, to what extent is that sense of just, like, painful loss over... Over these kinds of things, is that just today, or like, did people feel it keenly at that time too? I mean, obviously, the thirty scholars wow. who lost their jobs probably felt it, but like, so that's a really interesting question. Is it recorded in literature? This almost like the wailing by the waters of Babylon kind of feeling, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't encounter it. Yeah, and I wonder if it's because history is written by the victors. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, that's all I can say about that. Right. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> so now at this point, you might be wondering, wait a minute, we started out this series by marveling at Roman science and technology, and you were we were talking about the water mills and the water screws and all kinds of stuff that they had. It was looked like they're so advanced, right? Now we're making it to sound like the Romans were just little more than like hairy apes, <laughs> just kind of like scratching <laughs> their butts and like throwing shit all over the Greeks learning, right? Mm-hmm. What the F? Well, here's the thing. So the Romans really did not add that much to the principles, to the actual learning, you know, beyond what the Greeks discovered, but they did put into widespread use many of the technologies that had been invented Mm. earlier. Aqueducts are one example. We saw them in Pergamum already, but Romans built them all over the place, right? right? Another is the water mill, which had already been described in Philo Mechanicus, Mm -hmm. 
But it wasn't till the Romans that they started popping up all over the place. So they would take these ideas and just run with them. Exactly. Mm. They would they would actually put them to use. And it right. may have had something to do with economic times were harder. There was a lot more competition. Mm. It may have had something to do with like it was one empire. So you had relative stability. But, oh, right. Yeah. But times were tougher and you had more economic incentive to put this stuff into use. Right. Maybe. That's true. I mean, I suppose it would be hard to put a lot of widespread aqueducts all across Greece when it's like 40 different city-states who are yeah. always fighting and, you know, mm-hmm. so any any given one of them may or may not want an aqueduct to, like, they pay for it, you yeah. know. But even manufacturing technology had degraded by the time of Romans <laughs> here. So, for example, Hero of Alexandria, who was working from Philomechanicus, who described reduction gears in the book that you got. Mm. Hero, for some reason, fails to make any use of reduction gears in his inventions. Why might that be? Mm. Russo speculates that perhaps by that time, the precision tooling necessary to construct such things had already been lost. So he he couldn't. I don't know if I buy that because he still could have designed it. Right, right. Mm, I don't know. Make up your mind, yeah. I guess. But If that was true, then that would also mean we'd have to call into question whether indeed the Romans could have built the locomotive we designed last time, which did rely on some pretty good precision tooling assumptions and there being like threaded bolts and things like that. Yeah, it may call that into a question <laughs> if in fact Russo is correct. If he was correct about that. Yes. Yeah. Now the last gasp of the Great Library of Alexandria or rather its tradition, since the library itself had been destroyed already by this point. But scholars continued to teach in their homes hmm. in the tradition of the library. This came to an end in 415 CE with the lynching of Hypatia of Alexandria. Hmm. She was a highly respected member of the community who wrote a commentary on the conic sections of Apollonius of Perga, okay. and another on the furiously complex algebra of Diophantes Arithmetica, hmm. And we wouldn't even have knowledge of that text if it weren't for her. But alas, she ran afoul of local politics. And it wasn't really motivated by religion, like a lot of historians try to make it seem like. Hmm. But a local bishop, a Christian bishop, stirred up a mob for political reasons. She was an easy target because she was pagan Hmm. and she was a woman scholar. Right. So it's like, bada bing, bada boom, she's going to be my scapegoat. Yeah. And the rest is history. She got lynched. Hmm. And there was never really another great scholar associated with the library tradition after that. This is held up by many scholars as the arbitrary point at which, like, all of this stuff just dies. (laughs) (laughs) What happens next, you already know. Eventually, the Western Roman Empire falls. Europe enters a full-on medieval period. Scholarship goes through an extreme bottleneck. Mm. And there are too many texts to copy and not enough paper or copyists to do it all. So medieval copyists essentially end up playing a game of Desert Island, you know, like, which book would you take if you could only take one? Right. And that's the same question they basically face, deciding which books to copy for future generations and which to let fall to dust in the winds of time. Right. And the books they ended up choosing are, A, the ones relevant to them and their Christian religion, B, the ones that they could understand, because who the hell can understand this jargon in Greek that these ancient scientists were writing in? It's like, I don't know. Right. Right. I mean, in fairness, just reading, like, actual translations of, of like, Plato's dialogues, like... It's hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <it's, laughs> I don't really blame the Romans or later medieval Christians for not getting it. Like, yeah. it's just yeah. terribly not clear. And finally, C, they transmitted 
the ones with the widest array of knowledge in the fewest pages. The summaries. Oh. And this is interesting. Hmm. Okay, because imagine that you're playing this game, right? You got to determine which books are going to be cast onto the next generation. You walk into like the a kind of bookstore that you would see at a university that sells textbooks for students. Hmm. Which ones are you going to take? You're going to take right. the textbooks that are written for graduate students? Mm. No, you're going to take like the 101 books mm. that are thick. They got a lot of diagrams in them, but there's relatively light treatment of any given topic. Right. Just enough that you can kind of get an idea. Yeah. Aristotle might have two paragraphs, right. of, you know? Yeah. That kind of thing. It's better to have an encyclopedia article on every topic in the world than two books on two topics. Yeah. Yeah. And as we saw before, summaries were already misunderstanding the works yeah. of people before. <laughs> uh, so it's just like, it gets just shittier and shittier and shittier. Hmm. Yeah. So that is what happened to ancient learning in the medieval period. Consequently, our picture of ancient learning that we have today usually is very skewed because we're largely looking at what survived hmm. rather than what now scholars are discovering about what they really actually knew in the Hellenistic period. Things did get a little bit better in the Renaissance, and people at that time did manage to get their hands on books that we don't have today. Leonardo da Vinci worked from Philomechanicus, as we said. Copernicus worked from Aristarchus and cites him okay. as a source. And Newton worked from Apollonius of Perga, recovering his conic sections geometry to describe gravitation. Hmm. And even Charles Darwin credits Aristotle in his preface to The Origin of the Species wow. as having had an early notion of natural selection. And that is the idea, at least, that animals experience mutations between generations and that only those that experience beneficial mutations would survive. The rest would die off. Mm. And so that's how animals change over time right. and become adapted to their environment. All of that was already stated by Aristotle, Wow! who was actually arguing against that idea, <laughs> but the, it shows that the ideas were current. They were there, yeah. Yeah, right? So a lot of what we think of as completely modern theories right. were inspired at least by very, very ancient things. And the, the thing was, as this process happened, then the new person, the modern person coming up with the theory would be the one who's remembered and you forget that. Hmm. You know, so he's like, yeah, evolution, natural selection was invented by Darwin and Wallace. Right. You know, but you forget about some guy he said in his like, book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. There you have it. That is the story of ancient science and technology, how it died and how it had to be reanimated in modern times. So that is our undead idea. Yes, for this I was series. hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> Because uh, it's a beautiful idea to have died, so that this way we don't have to double shot it. Yep. It's a beautiful idea to have died. Well, it's it's a beautiful idea. I'm sorry it died, and I'm glad that this is like living again mm -hmm. in its own way. Absolutely. To living ideas. To living ideas. And that fulfills our gauge. Unless you say the name again. <laughs> I'll try not to. <laughs> so... To finish out this series, like I said, we're going to have one more episode coming for you, which is an interview with Jordan Harper, host of Twilight Histories, who's going to tell us about his alternate history setting, Rome Industrial. Nice. Wow. He has this ongoing fictional series coming out set in that alternate history world where Rome does actually industrialize. I'm going to read that. That sounds great. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can listen to it because podcasts. Well, sure. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's a podcast series. It's a podcast, yeah. I am not a good listener. Okay, great. I will listen to the podcast, though. <laughs> so the thing is, like, what would that world be like? Well, you know, we hope you have some idea after listening to our series here. 
And we hope that you're as excited as we are to dive into a story about that exact freaking world. I'm stoked. So you can find that on his Patreon feed, but the first episode is free on his Twilight Histories feed. I think this has also changed my view of, you know, like, you know, when people are like, well, if I could time travel, what would I do? It's usually like a go kill Hitler. And like, <laughs> that's a noble cause, right? <laughs> sure. I agree with that. But I almost feel like if I could only go do one, change one thing, I would go way back. And I would just, <laughs> just protect Alexandria and nice. just with some modern weaponry and be like, no, nah, you're not taking this. You're not, you're not knocking over this library. Get off my library. Exactly. <laughs> You're not getting my books. I guess I would need some, probably just not just me with a shotgun would not work. <laughs> it's a lot of Romans. I don't know. You can ask Jordan Harbor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Folks, if you like what you're doing here, you can support us on Patreon. And the proceeds also go toward developing our next podcast on the history of sex, covering gender, sex, and quirk across world cultures and throughout world history. So stoked for this podcast. We don't know when it's coming out, but eventually. We're yeah. going to take our time. We're going to do it right. By the way, I have to say, uh, one thing that I have always wondered about with our with the current podcast that I, mm-hmm. I'm not going to name um, <laughs> is that like a lot of times we touch on topics about sex, sexuality, uh, patriarchy, yeah. gender discrimination, things like that. But a lot of times, I mean, a lot of times Anna's here co-hosting, which is great. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's like you and me or you and somebody else, like a couple of dudes talking about this stuff. And yeah. one thing I'm really excited about is with the new series, you are going to have a female co-host we have a co-host that's not just a female she's also a professor of sex magic and marriage i believe in Amazing. medieval in the medieval period yeah jillian kenny yes yeah. who's been we'll on this see, show who has been on this show so you can go back to our medieval gay series and you can check out our interview with her great so thank you jillian for being willing to do this in the next year we're going to be experimenting with formats we're going to work something out hopefully that'll work out and uh we're going to be posting updates might release maybe some experiments on this podcast's feed. Nice, nice. Um, and uh, we'll also have the occasional dead idea, maybe like a mini dead idea or something. Yeah. And I'm also probably going to re-release some of those episodes you were talking about, which we did on this show, that were largely about gender issues and right. s- sex and marriage oh, and great. women and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Just to kind of like get that on new listeners' minds as well. Terrific. Kind of a best of thing. Andre, thanks for being on the episode. Thank you very much. I have, It's been an honor being here. You are the Eratosthenes of my podcast library. <laughs> nice. I'm the second best. <laughs> but in everything. <laughs> thanks for all of your work on this whole show. I want to say thank you also to all of my co-hosts throughout the series. Nick, Anna, Pete, Megan, John, Ingrid, my cousin Nick, Tia, Kelly, and Adam McEthern, who also did our maps. And I want to say thank you to all of our listeners, our fans, our Patreon supporters. Thank you, everybody. It's been a blast. It's been a hell of a run. We will see you next time for that interview with Jordan Harbour. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is D... (laughs) We'll cheers right after he says this. (laughs) Can we cheers before you say it? Sure. All right. To living ideas. Living ideas. (laughs) I'm B.T. Newberg and this is Dead Ideas.